0: Good morning, my name is Janice. I am so glad to be bringing you this final sermon in a series that we have been doing here at the Vineyard on the Book of Esther. And uh, I don't know about you, I have enjoyed this. I hope you've had a chance to get into uh, all of these messages. But uh, if you're joining us for the very first time, or maybe you haven't been able to see those, um, can I just let you know that the book of Esther is this fabulous story of redemption. It's really a way that God demonstrates that through one person, He is able to deliver an entire nation who have been slated for um, for annihilation. Somebody is trying to exterminate every one of them and God arranges for someone to be in the right place at the right time. And, uh, and through Queen Esther's courage, she's able to save the entire nation of the Jews. Well, there are a lot of characters in this story. And, um, and so I was talking with a friend this week who said, you know, there are so many names. I just can barely keep up with all of those names. And so I thought it would be fun this morning to bring a chart. And uh, kind of help you get up to speed on some of the characters that we are going to be talking about and have been talking about over the past few weeks. So just briefly, let me sketch a few of the characters that we have. Um, our main character is going to be the king right here. He is King Xerxes. He is the king of Persia, and uh, and this is his first wife. Queen number one is Vashti. All right, and uh, and we are going to be looking at the Book of Esther this morning. We've looked at it from several different angles. This week we're going to be looking at it through the lens of marriages so we're going to be checking out this particular marriage in particular okay and then Queen Esther here will replace Vashti as Queen so she's Queen number two and we'll be looking at this relationship understand that this person right here Mordecai is Esther's cousin all right. And he's a little bit older than her. He has become her, her guardian because she's an orphan. And uh, and he actually sits at the palace. He is sits at the city gate and uh, and sits there. And whatever his role is, he's a bit of a gatekeeper for the king. He has access there. And uh, this man over here is Haman. Um, I was going to call him our henchman Haman, which is kind of an old-fashioned word for villain. This is the, the person who creates a lot of the drama in the story. And he's a bit of a contemporary to uh, Mordecai. They see each other every day, and uh, there's no love lost between them, um, but the other relationship we're going to take just a glance at at the end is going to be this one, his wife, Zeresh, and Haman. So those are the characters, and uh, maybe you can uh, keep track of that a little bit better. All right, well, we have a lot of ground to cover this morning, so um, I just want to get right into it. If you have uh, a notebook, or if you have a pen, something you want to take notes with and keep track of this, that would be great. We're going to look first of all at Xerxes and Vashti and their relationship, and this comes out of Esther chapter one, or their entire relationship can be found there. Understand that this particular king is king over the entire Persian empire. At this time of history, what has happened is the Jews have already been conquered by Babylon. Babylon had taken and dispersed them into captivity throughout the Middle East, um, so they are largely captives. That is who Mordecai and Esther are, they are the Jewish, um, some of those captives who are now living freely among the, these people. And the Babylonians have now been taken over by the Persians or the Assyrians. And this empire ranges in scope from Turkey all the way to India. We're talking about the entire Middle East and the Jews are there. Now, King Xerxes is a proud man and he likes to celebrate his accomplishments. And so he has been celebrating everything he has, everything he owns, everything that he has accomplished. And he takes half a year to do this. And it is culminated now in a week long uh, festival, a week of festivities, and uh, they are having a great time. He has invited all of his favorite people, and, uh, and it's an open bar. And so uh, at this point, when the king is in high spirits, uh, he makes a really poor decision. After celebrating everything he has and everything he owns, he decides to celebrate his wife, and he calls her to come and parade in front of his drunken friends uh, to display her beauty. Well, this wasn't exactly on Queen Vashti's list of things to do that day. And so she declines. She chooses not to come. And uh, one of my favorite pieces of this story that often gets uh, passed over is the fact that the king doesn't quite know what to do next. So he consults with his wise men, which is what most kings in antiquity did whenever they had a big decision to make. And he says, what should I do about this? And, uh, And I love their response. They're like, listen, if, if your queen can tell you no, our wives are going to hear about it, and they're going to tell us no, and it's just going to be havoc in the kingdom, so you better do something about this. This is setting a really big precedent. You've got to get rid of her. And, uh, and so he takes their advice and he decides to uh, take the throne away from Vashti and she's banished from the throne and uh, he's going to have to search for a new queen. I think the only bright spot in this is that it appears that once the king has sobered up, he really does seem to regret the rash decision that he made uh, when he decided that he needed to replace Queen Vashti. But uh, here's, here's the bottom line. I don't think that Vashti was offended by the fact that her husband found her attractive. I do not think that she was offended that he um, was proud of her in any way. All right. But you cannot celebrate someone by exploiting them. You cannot celebrate someone by exploiting them. Being proud of someone is completely different than wearing them as a trophy and women inherently know the difference. You know, if you've been awake at all in the the last year or so with the Me Too movement and, uh, and what has gone on in the workplace in terms of harassment and our attempts to legislate this, uh, the reality is we can tell, we can actually tell the difference between a compliment and a compliment, one that has agenda, one that has... Um, Uh, insinuation that goes along with it. And Queen Vashti is no different. She sees that. And, And folks, this is so hard to legislate because there's so much nuance to it. But in our own marriages, we have to recognize that when we celebrate each other, we can't exploit each other. And I think this goes for men as well as women. I think nobody wants to be taken for granted. Nobody wants to be used or feel like their contribution to the relationship is all about um, their money or their body or their influence or their position or um, their inheritance that they bring, their stability, maybe even their intellect. Um, If these things become more valuable than the person who brings them to the relationship, we're going to begin to be cynical we're going to begin to feel uh, exploited and disrespected. And the bottom line is disrespect will erode a marriage. It just will. But here's the thing, spouses want to be celebrated. You know, I have so much sympathy right now for for many of these young couples that we, have known and have been working with this during the season who had weddings planned and are having to cancel them because of the virus and the restrictions on gathering together and, and all of those things. And I feel so much sympathy for them because, and not only have they perhaps lost down payments on venues and things that they've set up, but, but they're, they're being um, forced to either forego the entire celebration or have a tiny wedding where they're not able to celebrate in the way that they wanted with friends and family and significant people uh, about this important decision that they're making in their lives. Uh, You know, and I've heard some people say, well, weddings are too commercial. They're too expensive anyway. And, you know, we we talk about it like it's Christmas or something. It's like, you know, we've just missed the whole message of the whole thing. And maybe they should just take that money and buy a house. Um, And can I just say that I categorically disagree with this? I just think that weddings are the best. As a matter of fact, my very first job as a, a teenager in high school was at a bridal shop. I loved everything about it. The flowers, the dresses, the, the invitations, the, the beauty of everything, the creativity that went into these celebrations. And, uh, and even if you still think, well, this just gotten out of hand. I challenge you to do a study on bride or do a word study on weddings in the scripture. Scripture is filled with weddings. Jesus' very first miracle is turning water into wine. It is clear that he was not just at this wedding to celebrate the ceremony. He's there for the reception and so are his disciples. And these are not just four hour events that we schedule these days. These were sometimes week long events where they celebrated, um, Picking a spouse and making a covenant together. I can't think of a a better thing to have a party for than to celebrate. And here's the the other point. These celebrations are public. They're a public event. We want witnesses to be there. This makes me think of baptisms. You know, um, in a baptism, and we just, you know, experienced a couple of those this week, and we have more coming up. In a baptism, you're standing in front of witnesses and you can't baptize yourself. Nobody's ever been able to do that. You can't throw your head back in a tub and, and jump up and say that you're baptized. Even Jesus needed John the Baptist to participate in that event. But when we baptize someone, what we're doing is we're making a public announcement in front of friends and family to say, I am choosing this day to follow this God. In a wedding, you're saying in front of friends and family, I am choosing this day to be with this person for the rest of my life. And I think God is honored by those things. Proverbs 31 says this, starting in verse 10, a wife of noble character who can find. She is worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. Moving down to verse 28, it says, her children arise and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women do noble things, and you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive, beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Honor her for all that her hands are done, and let her works bring her praise at the city gate. Elsewhere in the passage, it explains that while the wife is doing all of these fabulous things that I do not have time to even read to you there, um, her husband is sitting at the city gate talking about it. He's sitting there talking about how well uh, she manages her affairs, how well she manages her commerce, And, uh, and he says that he has full confidence in her. Marriage deserves that kind of celebration, to know that somebody is speaking well of their spouse. So can I just say that I think we in our marriages need to take advantage of all of those hallmark Uh, celebrations, all of those days, right? Valentine's Day, anniversaries, birthdays, whatever it is, those kind of things are often a part of relationships in the early part, uh, you know, at the beginning, at a wedding, but as people stay married, sometimes they kind of forget to do that. And, and they're like, well, you know, I don't really want to be forced into saying something at a certain time. You know, I, it should be spontaneous. I shouldn't have to schedule that. Well, can I say that as a church, we gather together on a regular basis, or we used to, you know, we're planning to do it again, to be able to gather together on a scheduled basis to offer our praise to God, whether you feel like it or not. Just because something is scheduled doesn't make it, um, you know, not authentic. It's still genuine. It can still be genuine, even if something is scheduled that way. Um, But here's the thing, when we celebrate someone We need to make sure that our celebration of them does not make them uncomfortable. If you are making someone uncomfortable with your celebration of them, chances are they're beginning to feel exploited. If you're not paying attention to whether or not your idea of of how to take care of them and to honor them makes them feel special, then you're not being sensitive to what, what really matters for them. And I think we have to watch for the cringe factor here. You know, I don't know if, if, like me, you've seen someone who has uh, tried to say something great about their spouse in front of other people, but you can see that that they're really not enjoying it and they're embarrassed. That's when that becomes exploitive and you're not really taking care of how that person wants to be honored. Um, You know, my husband is really, really great at this even in relationships that have nothing to do with marriage. In the past 27 plus years of uh, pastoring, when he has wanted to honor someone in the church for their service or something that that they do, um, you know, I'm the one who's like, well, this is the standard thing. This is how we need to do something or how to take care of them. And, And he'll be quick to say, no, this person wouldn't enjoy that. He notices very easily whether this particular person would prefer to have public words of affirmation and to be um, spoken of in that way. Or if that person would prefer to have maybe just a written note, a heartfelt message written to them behind the scenes, or maybe that person would really prefer a gift that would make them feel honored. When we think about how the person that we're trying to honor feels the most special, then it's about them and it's not about us. And I think we have to be careful that it's that our celebrating of other people isn't about building ourselves up as someone who does that, but is really about honoring that person. And that's something that Xerxes missed out on. Right. Marriage number two, Xerxes and Esther. This is an interesting uh, situation after he has after he has banished the queen, the first queen from his presence. She's not allowed to even come see him anymore. He does a nationwide search for the next queen. It's really a really bad episode of The Bachelor, where uh, he's going to parade all these women into his presence. He goes throughout the harem collecting anyone who looks like a viable candidate, and Esther is chosen. And uh, Mordecai lets her go, but he tells her very specifically, do not tell anyone that you're a Jew. Don't let them know your heritage. So apparently she looks Persian enough. She uh, passes muster. She goes through the year-long beauty treatments before she goes before the king. Sure enough, He chooses her and she becomes queen, but their entire relationship is marked by secrecy. Their entire relationship is is just muddled by the fact that she is not really sharing everything that she is. Now I get it. This is a a marriage out of antiquity when a lot of these marital arrangements and royal positions were things of arrangement or alliances, if you will. But uh, nonetheless, I still think there's some lessons here. That we can learn. During this period of secrecy um, and her not sharing everything with them, it has also been a little bit of time since she had seen the king. And here's what's going down in the meantime: Mordecai and Haman are not getting along very well. Haman has been um, elevated to, uh, he's gotten a promotion, if you will, above all the other nobles in the uh, palace. And so when he walks through the city gates, everyone is giving deference to him. They're honoring him. They're bowing to him, except Mordecai. Mordecai is snubbing him, and that makes Haman crazy. So instead of just trying to eliminate Haman, he knows that Haman is a Jew, he decide or, or Mordecai is a Jew, instead of trying to eliminate Mordecai alone, he asks the king if they can just eradicate all of the Jews from throughout the empire. And, uh, and that would take care of the matter. And he doesn't even have to tell the king that he's really angry about that. But Haman does not know that the queen is a Jew. So Mordecai has to tell Esther, you're going to have to go and plead for your people. You're going to have to approach the king. And she's afraid to do it. She's concerned. It's been 30 plus days since he's called for her. And if she goes to see him, she doesn't know how he's gonna respond. If he's gonna banish her, if he's going to be tender, she doesn't really know. All of this tells me this, secrecy in marriage leads to drift. Any relationship built on secrecy where you're not sharing all of yourself with the other person will ultimately bring drift. It ultimately brings distance. If you want to kill a marriage, start keeping secrets. I guarantee it. You want to kill it. You just start keeping secrets. Secrets kill trust. They do. And I've heard people say, well, how much do I have to share with my spouse? Do I have to tell them everything I do all day long? Do they have to know everybody I've talked to? Um, you know, that's, it's ridiculous. We can't be beside each other all day long. Here's the test of that. I think if there is anything that your spouse would discover about what you have done, who you have talked to, what you have spent that would make them upset when they discover it, you probably should have shared that already. Right. Uh, When I walk in the door from buying groceries, uh, my husband doesn't ask me how much I spent there. And if he were to find out the number, he's not troubled by it. But if there's something going on and I've done something that I'm keeping from him, that's a problem. Anything that would garner the statement. Well, when were you going to tell me that? Why didn't you tell me that? Now you're in a situation where people have begun to create distance in their relationship. and and they're not sharing with each other. When uh, Pastor Joe and I do marriage counseling with young couples, we encourage them from the get-go, from the very beginning, share your passwords with each other. Share every entrance to every account that you possibly have with each other. That just builds trust. There, there's no reason that shouldn't be done. We've heard of people who are like, well, we don't really want to join our, our bank accounts. And when you ask them why, it generally comes down to this. Well, that person isn't as good with money as I am. And so I kind of like to keep my accounts to myself. And they take care of these expenses and I take care of mine. But I'm telling you, if you're the person who does better with your money over time, you will, you will build disrespect for the spouse who doesn't care for their money as well. But when you become a team and you become a union together, then um, the spender becomes a a little more tight with their money and the saver becomes a little more open and you find common ground. And you have to stay on the same page when you're sharing an account. You have to be open with each other um, every day. My husband and I like to motorcycle and uh, one summer we went on a trip with another couple and we stopped at a um, a flea market one Sunday afternoon. I think we were in Oregon. I don't even remember. And uh, the women went one direction. The men went another direction. And uh, I have my phone set up to alert me anytime my account uh, is used or any expense that hits my account. So we were walking around, and uh, all of a sudden, I got a charge on my account from a vendor I'd never heard of, and I was really concerned about that. And so uh, I couldn't track down my husband. It took me a little while, and I finally found him, only to discover that he was at this fabulous craftsman's table and had purchased a wooden bowl for me that this man had made that was going to be shipped directly to our home and he was trying to surprise me but because our accounts are linked the surprise was ruined and i knew that he had spent money in that way because we stay in touch with each other we're not trying to catch each each other in anything it just helps us stay on the same page I believe God planned for us to be a team in marriage. Genesis 2, 18 says this, The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Man and wife were designed to be a team. They had had tasks to do together in the garden, and they're in it together. But secrecy will bring drift, and drift brings distance. You know, if there's anything I think we have discovered, even in this uh, virus, is that distance affects relationships. And it's hard if we're not able to be with our elderly family members. When grandparents are not permitted to be with grandchildren, that's hurting us. I happen to think that this has demonstrated some of the very best of our humanity. I think it has revealed some of the very best of our humanity, in spite of all of the bad that we've seen. Because I, I don't know if you remember, a few decades ago we were concerned that with all this new technology and, and uh, the internet that we would never go outside of our houses again. We'd all sit in our basements with headphones on and, and do all of our commerce online and we'd never you know, leave and have a cup of coffee together. Well, I think the, the past month has demonstrated that's not true. We crave connection. And I think that's one of the most fabulous things that God gave us as a creation is that we desperately desire to be in connection with one another. Folks, our spiritual lives are the same way. Our spiritual lives are the same way. If there are parts of our lives that we are unwilling to share with God, Maybe we're like God. I, I will follow you. I will come. I will. I'll bring my church to family. Uh, my family to church every week. Whenever we're allowed to do that again. But but there's this part over here that I'm really not ready to give you yet. I'm really not ready to let you convict me in in this particular area of my life. Maybe my thought life. Maybe maybe the behaviors that I'm doing over on the side. Maybe I'm not ready to give you control of my finances. I'm not really, I'm not ready to be all yours. That creates distance with the Father, and, and He invites us to come and to be open with Him. Our relationship to God is um, is often compared to our relationship in a marriage. It's that sort of thing. We are the bride of Christ, and He is the bridegroom who will come for us one day. And it's it's just a powerful statement and um, an idea about the things that make our, our horizontal relationships good are the same things that go into our vertical relationship with God because distance affects relationships in a powerful way. And that distrust is evident in Esther. The distance that she's had from the King, the amount of time that has gone by since she has been in his presence, makes her tentative about walking into his presence again. Folks, there is nothing like the security of being in a relationship where you have complete trust. And when that trust has been broken, um, it it is hard. It is hard for relationships to come back from that. But I want you to know that if you do have a relationship where trust has been broken, maybe it isn't a marriage. Maybe it's a friendship. Maybe you have inadvertently betrayed a friend. Maybe you shared something that was told to you in confidence and you wish you really hadn't done that because now that person doesn't trust you anymore. And you would like to have that trust back. Can I tell you that trust can be rebuilt? Trust can be rebuilt in a marriage and in a relationship, but here's how you can't build it. You can't just say, well, it's been a long time. I haven't done that behavior in a long, long time. You should forgive me. You should get over it. Why, why are you still upset with me? Time doesn't build trust. Trustworthy behavior builds trust. When you want someone to trust you again, You continue to expose all of those areas where you were distrustful before so that they can continue to see that. And as you continue to be honest day in and day out, when you continue to keep the confidence that somebody has put in you day in and day out, you can build that trust back. Time doesn't rebuild trust, but trustworthy behavior can. All right, our final, final relationship is Haman and his wife, Zeresh. Now, there's just a couple of references to this relationship, but um, I, just, I just find them significant. First of all, Haman is uh, our henchman in the story. He is the nobleman who has determined to find a way to get rid of Mordecai. And the way he's going to do that is to have all of the Jews wiped out. But he is a man who is manic one minute and depressed the next. So uh, on one particular day, he goes to the palace. And on that day, he has no idea what's coming down the pike. But uh, Queen Esther has invited him and the king to a banquet. That's where she's going to kind of expose the whole thing, but Haman doesn't know that. And so he thinks he's getting another promotion. He's so excited. And so he um, goes home, uh, but on his way out the, the palace gate, he passes Mordecai and Mordecai snubs him again. How many of us are having a great day? And it takes one person, one driver, one messed up drive through order, to ruin our whole day and to wipe out everything good that had ever happened. This is Haman. So he goes home and, uh, and this is what happens in Esther chapter five, 12 through 14. He's, he's called his friends and his wife together and he's telling them uh, about his wealth and how fabulous everything is. And he says, and that's not all, Haman added. I am the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, have a pole set up, reaching to the height of 50 cubits and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. And then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. Well, this suggestion delighted Haman and he had the pole set up. Here's what I see in this. This wife supports her husband in the midst of her of his anger. She actually joins in with what he is doing, but I'm not convinced that she's really that disturbed by Mordecai, or is she really just trying to get a happy husband back? Because she's tired of him coming in and having his life turned upside down by one silly event, so she's gonna help him get past that event. And here's the lesson I think we can take from this. We can't always fix it. In our relationships with our spouse, They may come home and maybe something's gone wrong. Maybe we come home and we've had a bad day. It's not our spouse's responsibility to fix it. Maybe we're going through something that needs to happen. Pacifying someone's anger often is a selfish choice. It's often a selfish choice of the person who just really wants peace in the house. We just really, because that's affecting us and we're looking for a way to get past it. This made me think of one other story in scripture. And I'm going to take you to the book of first Kings. One more marriage very quickly that demonstrates this very well. This is King Ahab and his wife, Jezebel first Kings 21. Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel close to the palace of Ahab, King of Samaria. And Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden. Since it is close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I'll pay you whatever it's worth. But Naboth replied, "Mm, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. So Ahab went home, sullen and angry, because Naboth had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. His wife Jezebel came in and asked him, why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? And he answered her, because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I will give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said, is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get that vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. And she does. She manages to create an entire web of deceit um, that manages to get that vineyard for her husband. Sometimes the easiest thing to do is to try to fix whatever is going on with a spouse who has become, um, is maybe fuming or sulking or pouting or whatever because their bad day has now become our bad day and it's leaking all over us and we're looking for ways to get out of it. But here's the deal maybe God isn't asking us to fix everything in front of us. Maybe God is trying to take them through something that we're interrupting by trying to fix it. Maybe our desire to make everyone happy is not what God had for us in the first place. It could just be our own narcissistic tendencies that just want everybody happy so that we feel happy. And and I just want you to know that there is no happy in wedding vows. Of all of the weddings that my husband has officiated and that I've listened in on, that is never a part of the wedding vow. You didn't promise to make your spouse happy. They didn't promise to make you happy. Hopefully, your marriage will have joy in it. Hopefully, you can bring joy to each other. But folks, happy is a choice. That is a choice. Now, do not hear me saying that you should put up with abuse, that you should put up with infidelity. I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying that sometimes our spouses just have to work through the things that are going on. And we, if we aren't careful, we run the risk of joining that sinful attitude that's, that's going on. Because at the end of the day, we're going to stand before God alone. God's not going to ask us what our spouses were doing and how that affected our walk with Him. We're going to be responsible to God alone for the way we were and how we related to Him. We can love our spouses without fixing everything. If God can love us unconditionally, we can love our spouses unconditionally even when they're having a bad day. It's not our job to fix them. It's our job to love them and to celebrate them. So this week... How about a homework? We had charts. How about a homework? We're not doing things the regular way. How about this week? You find a way to celebrate your spouse. You find a way to honor them, whether it's privately, publicly, genuinely, whatever. Um, But you need to plan it and make it and make it real. Okay. Make it something that is going to matter to them. Find a way to celebrate them. But there's a couple of rules. They have to know you were celebrating them. If you tried to celebrate them and they didn't catch it, you need to try again, okay? And they have to feel celebrated. If you annoy them with it, if you embarrass them by whatever you t- attempt to do, you've missed the mark. To, so back up and try again. If you're not married, can I invite you in your homework, find some relationship in your life that is meaningful to you and reach out and honor that person. It's Mother's Day. Maybe it's your mother. Maybe it's not your mother. Maybe that is not the person that you can honor genuinely today, but there might be someone else in your life that you can reach out to and honor them in a powerful way. Well, it has been good to bring this series of Esther with you. And folks, we are still going through so much as a community. So if you would like prayer today, can I just invite you to go back to the website, vineyardrichmond.com down at the bottom and take advantage of the live chat button there um, and just reach out and have someone pray for you in real time. And, uh, and I just wanna pray for you as we close today. God, we thank you for the opportunity to just continue to minister in the midst of uh, this isolation. God, we know that you are doing a new thing. You are doing something bigger than we could have dreamed up on our own. And so God, I pray that you would help us to lean into that. I pray that you would touch each of our lives with um, just what you are trying to minister to us about during this time. And God, those are very, very different things. God, for the marriages out there that we've been speaking to uh, in the last while that are struggling, God, I pray healing over that. I pray for repentance where there needs to be repentance. God, where there are people who are longing for relationships, I pray that you would bring those to fruition. We are built for companionship. And for, for those of us who are single, this has been excruciating. For some of us, this has been a terrible, terrible experience to feel this cut off from community. And so I pray for comfort and I pray for guidance in those people's lives. God, we thank you for what you are doing and what you have already done. And God, we look forward to what you're going to continue to do in our community. In Jesus' name, amen.